Section 26 of The Jolly Parisians and Other Novelettes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brandon Weston. Marguerite by Emile Zola. Translated by George D. Cox. Chapter 1 Alive in Death. It was on a Saturday at six in the morning that I died after a three days' illness. My wife was searching a trunk for some linen, and when she rose and turned, she saw me rigid, with open eyes and silent pulses. She ran to me, fancying I had fainted, touched my hands and bent over me. Then she suddenly grew alarmed, burst into tears, and stammered, My God! My God! He is dead! I heard everything, but the deadened sounds seemed to come from a great distance. My left eye still perceived a faint glimmer, a whitish light in which all objects melted, but my right eye was quite bereft of sight. It was the coma of my whole being, as if a thunderbolt had struck me. My will was annihilated. Not a fiber of my flesh obeyed my bidding. And yet amid the impotency of my inert limbs my thoughts subsisted, sluggish and lazy, still perfectly clear. My poor Marguerite was crying. She had dropped on her knees beside the bed, repeating in heart-rending tones, He is dead. My God, he is dead. Was this strange state of torpor, this immobility of the flesh, really death, although the functions of the intellect were not arrested? Was my soul only lingering for a brief space before it soared away forever? From my childhood upwards I had been subject to hysterical attacks, and twice, in early youth, I had nearly succumbed to nervous fevers. By degrees all those who surrounded me had got accustomed to consider me an invalid, and to see me sickly, so much so that I myself had forbidden my wife to call the doctor when I had taken to my bed on the day of our arrival at the cheap lodging-house of the Rue Dauphine in Paris. A little rest would soon set me right again. It was only the fatigue of the journey which had caused my intolerable weariness, and yet I was conscious of having felt singularly uneasy. We had left our province somewhat abruptly. We were very poor, and had barely enough money to support ourselves till I drew my first month's salary in the office where I had obtained a station, and now a sudden seizure was carrying me off. Was it really death? I had pictured to myself a darker night, a deeper silence. As a little child I had already felt afraid to die. Being weak and compassionately petted by everyone, I had concluded that I had not long to live, that I should soon be buried, and the thought of the cold earth filled me with a dread I could not master, a dread which haunted me day and night. As I grew older the same terror pursued me. Sometimes, after long hours spent in reasoning with myself, I thought that I had conquered my fear. I reflected, after all, what does it matter? One dies, and it is over. It is the common fate. Nothing could be better or easier. I then prided myself on being able to look death boldly in the face. But suddenly a shiver would freeze my blood. My dizzying anguish returned as if a giant hand had swung me over a black abyss. It was the vision of the earth returning and setting reason at naught. How often at night have I started up in bed, not knowing what cold breath had swept over my slumbers, clasping my despairing hands and moaning, 
must I die? In those moments an icy horror would stop my pulses, while an appalling vision of dissolution rose before me. It was with difficulty that I could get to sleep again. Indeed, sleep alarmed me. It so closely resembled death. If I closed my eyes, they might never open again. I might slumber on forever. I cannot tell if others have endured the same torture. I only know that my own life has been made a torment by it. Death has risen between me and all I love. I can remember how the thought of it poisoned the happiest moments I spent with Marguerite. During the first months of our married life, when she lay sleeping by my side and I dreamed of a fair future for her and with her, the foreboding of a fatal separation dashed my hopes aside and embittered my delights. Perhaps we should be parted on the morrow, nay, perhaps in an hour's time. Then utter discouragement assailed me. I wondered what the bliss of being united availed me if it were to end in so cruel a disruption. My morbid imagination reveled in scenes of mourning. I speculated as to who would be the first to depart, Marguerite or I. Either alternative caused me harrowing grief, and tears rose to my eyes at the thought of our shattered lives. At the happiest periods of my existence I have fallen a prey to grim dejection which nobody could understand, but which was caused by the thought of impending nihility. When I was most successful I was to general wonder most depressed. The fatal question, what avails it, rang like a knell in my ears. But the sharpest sting of this torment was that it came with a secret sense of shame, the inability of confiding my thoughts to another. Husband and wife, lying side by side in a darkened room, may be shaken by the same shudder and yet remain mute. For people do not mention death any more than they pronounce certain prohibited words. Fear makes it nameless. I was musing thus while my dear Marguerite knelt sobbing at my feet. It grieved me sorely not to be able to comfort her by telling her I suffered no pain. If death were merely the annihilation of the flesh, I had been foolish to harbor so much dread. I experienced a selfish repose, a restfulness in which all my cares were forgotten. My memory had become extraordinarily vivid. My whole life passed rapidly before me like a play in which I no longer acted a part. It was a curious and enjoyable sensation. I seemed to hear a far-off voice relating my own history. I especially saw a peculiar spot in the country, near Garonde, on the road to Piriac. The road turns sharply, a scattered wood of pines carelessly dots a rocky slope. When I was seven years old I used to pass through those pines with my father as far as the crumbling old house, where Marguerite's parents gave me pancakes. They were salt-gatherers, and earned a scanty livelihood by working the adjacent salt marshes. Then I remembered the school at Nantes, where I had grown up, leading a monotonous life within the ancient walls and yearning for the broad horizon of Gironde and the salt marshes stretching to the limitless sea widening under the sky. Then came a blank. My father was dead. I entered the hospital as a clerk to the managing board and led a dreary life with one solitary diversion, my Sunday visits to the old house on the Piriac Road. The salt works were doing badly, poverty reigned in the land, and Marguerite's parents were nearly penniless. Marguerite, when merely a child, had been fond of me because I made her ride in a wheelbarrow, but on the morning when I asked her in marriage she shrank from me with a frightened gesture, 
and I realized that she thought me hideous. Her parents, however, consented at once. They looked upon my offer as a godsend, and the daughter submissively acquiesced. When she became accustomed to the idea of marrying me, she did not seem to dislike it so much. On our wedding day at Gironde, the rain fell in torrents, and when we got home my bride had to take off her dress, which was soaked through, and sit in her petticoats. That was all the youth I ever had. We did not remain long in our province. One day I found my wife in tears. She was miserable. Life was so dull, she wanted to get away. Six months later I had saved a little money by taking in extra work after office hours, and through the influence of a friend of my father's, I obtained a petty appointment in Paris. I started off to settle there with the dear little woman, so that she might not cry any more. During the night which we spent in the third-class railway carriage, the seats being very hard, I took her in my arms so that she might sleep. That was the past, and now I had just died on the narrow bed of a Paris lodging house, and my wife was crouching on the floor and crying bitterly. The white light before my left eye was growing dim, but I remembered the room perfectly. On the left there was a chest of drawers, on the right a mantelpiece surmounted by a damaged clock without a pendulum, the hands of which marked ten minutes past ten. The window gave on the Rue Dauphine, a long, dark street. All Paris seemed to pass below, and the noise was so great that the window shook. We knew no one in the city. We had hurried our departure, but I was not expected at the office till the following Monday. Since I had taken to my bed, I had wondered at my imprisonment in this narrow room into which we had tumbled after a railway journey of fifteen hours, followed by a hurried, confusing transit through the noisy streets. My wife had nursed me with smiling tenderness, but I knew that she was anxious. She would walk to the window, glance out and return to the bedside, looking very pale and startled by the sight of the busy thoroughfare, the aspect of the vast city of which she did not know a single stone, and which deafened her with its continuous roar. What would happen to her if I never woke up again, alone, friendless, and unknowing as she was? Marguerite had seized hold of one of my hands, which lay passive on the coverlet, and covering it with kisses, she repeated wildly, Olivier, answer me. Oh, my God, he is dead, dead. So death was not complete annihilation. I could hear and think. I had been uselessly alarmed all these years. I had not dropped into utter vacancy as I had anticipated. I could not realize the disappearance of my being, the suppression of all that I had been, without the possibility of renewed existence. I had been wont to shudder whenever in any book or newspaper I came across a date of a hundred years hence, a date at which I should no longer be alive, a future which I should never see, filled me with unspeakable uneasiness. Was I not the whole world, and would not the universe crumble away when I was no more? To dream of life and death had been a cherished vision, but this could not possibly be death. I should assuredly wake presently. Yes, in a few moments I would lean over, take Marguerite in my arms, and dry her tears. I would rest a little while longer before going to my office. A new life would begin, brighter than the last. However, I did not feel impatient. The commotion had been too strong. It was wrong of Marguerite to give way like that when I had not even the strength to turn my head on the pillow and smile at her. The next time that she moaned out, 
He is dead, dead. I would embrace her and murmur softly so as not to startle her. No, my darling, I was only asleep. You see, I am alive, and I love you. End of section 26